and welcome to episode 1376 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Ben, hello. Hi. Chris Sale had 17 strikeouts through seven innings, a new record. Did you get your hopes up? No. To me, the process of writing about 21K outings has really helped me to uh, root more efficiently, I think. Uh, because it focused my attention. And I think it was the play index that we did probably in the episode 900 or so that really did. The key thing is, of course, pitches. You don't have 27 outs to work with necessarily, and you don't need 27 outs necessarily, but you do have something like 120 pitches uh, with maybe a little bit of margin on either side. And so you basically need to be pitching at six pitches per strikeout to have a, a reasonable chance. And Sale had... Uh, eight strikeouts through three innings with 47 pitches, which is uh, on pace. And I was uh, sitting in a piano lesson waiting room and couldn't tweet out an alert uh, at that point. But a few minutes later, he had like a seven-pitch at bat against Charlie Blackmon, who I, I think grounded out after foul tipping a pitch into and out of a mitt. And at that point, then it became a, a sort of a, a strain. And then the next batter... Uh, I think had like a five or six pitch at bat and didn't strike out. And that was pretty much it. I quit. I quit watching. Uh, I mean, I didn't quit watching, but I quit considering it a chase. It was no longer a chase, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So they took him out after 108 pitches and seven innings, and then the bullpen blew the game. They went to extra innings, so perhaps they regretted it, but perhaps not because their priority is keeping Chris Sale healthy, and it looks like Chris Sale is good, and it looks like the Red Sox are good, and all of the early season worries about both of those things not being true have eased up somewhat. Chris Sale's last couple starts have had pretty extraordinary strikeout and walk yeah. totals. Yeah. So I know his velocity is not all the way back, but he's making it work. He, I mean, th- theoretically, he could have struck out the next four batters on 12 pitches and done it. But, I mean, that's very unlikely. And he, uh, he it's strange to say of a guy who had 17 strikeouts and no walks, uh, but he wasn't even leading at the time, right? And so it made sense in the moment to pull him after 108 pitches. 20 was 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 a reasonable thing. If if you thought 20 is worth chasing, then maybe you keep him in for 122 pitches because there's a decent chance he'd do that. But I don't think 20 is worth chasing. I'm not impressed by 20. I only want 21. So I thought every everybody behaved, you know, more or less appropriately here. Mm-hmm. All right. You have any banter? I just want to correct something. Uh, my process of determining whether Dylan Floro had been good was, uh-huh. was somewhat misinformed. Dylan Floro did not bat twice against John Ryan Murphy this year. He batted last year against Eric Kratz. So he was in that article, but he was not the pitcher that I had uh, been thinking of. I, I believe Brock Stewart was that pitcher, uh-huh. and Brock Stewart was not on our, our list uh, because he has only played three games for the Dodgers in which he gave up eight runs. And so just just to clarify that, I, I think it, I think in every single one of my processes, I said at least one untruth, which is <laughs> kind of what's going to happen when you're trying to remember what a uh, middle reliever did in the fourth game of the season yeah. to try to deduce something that you don't actually know about a pitcher who you know almost nothing about, but mostly true stuff and Dylan Floro. I think the process more or less <laughs> was still accurate. But anyway, Dylan Floro. 
<laughs> yeah. So I brought this up on the Ringer MLB show yesterday, but I have to bring it up again. I, I talked to Michael Bauman about how bad the Marlins have been. They've been really historically terrible thus far, and I focused specifically on their offense, which has been horrendous. And then after we did that segment, the Marlins went out and got shut out by the Rays. So now the numbers are even worse than they were when I talked about it yesterday. The Marlins as a team are 10 and 30. That is, of course, a 250 winning percentage, which puts them on pace for 41 wins if you round up. And according to their run differential, Wait, they are. If you round up from 40.25? 40.5, right? 40, would be. Wait, yeah. Would they, would they would win half of two games? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that uh, that gets into the metaphysical question of whether 0.5 should round up or round down. Yes, I'm not sure, but their run differential is that of a 9-31 and 31 team, which is, uh, that's a 225 winning percentage. That would be a 36-win team, and, and that does round down. So they've been really bad, and that's not surprising because they're the Marlins, and they're playing in a good division where the other teams are all competitive and are beating up on the Marlins all year. But their starting rotation is actually pretty credible. They're they're pretty good. They've got Pablo Lopez and they've got Jose Urania and they've got other guys I'm forgetting right now. Caleb Smith is uh, is maybe the best of the bunch. He's been pretty good this year. But beyond that, it's a sorry group and the bullpen has been a disaster. But the offense right now, the Marlins as a team are hitting 218, 281, 307. They have 24 home runs, which is by far the fewest in the league. And that gives them a 64 WRC+, which, to put that into perspective, the all-time worst team WRC+, in a full season in baseball's modern era, back to 1901, is the 1920 post-fire sale Athletics, who had a 67 WRC+. So right now, the Marlins, through a quarter of the season or so, have had what would be the worst offense ever in a full season. Of course, it is easy to be terrible or great over a quarter of a season or easier. If you look at the top of that all-time leaderboard, the 2019 Astros with a 135 WRC plus would be the best offense ever, which is not that inconceivable given that the 2017 World Series winning Astros had, I think, the fourth best offense of all time by that measure. I think the, the best other than the Ruth Gehrig Yankees. So the Astros are good. The Marlins are incredibly inept. And I don't know if it's going to get much better from here. Their best hitter, I think by far so far, their really only above average hitter is Neil Walker. And it just falls off from there. And yeah, can we can we talk about their second best hitter? Because they have... Who is they it? Have, well, they Alfaro? have 22 players have batted at least once 22 yeah. okay five <laughs> of those are pitchers so but i'm going to include them because including them can only benefit them and i want to give them the benefit of that so 22 hitters with at least one plate appearance the second best hitter in any number of plate appearances <laughs> has a 344 slugging percentage <laughs> and a sorry 342 slugging percentage and a 683 ops that is backup catcher chad wallach uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> who is so he's the second best with a 683 ops and that's bad <laughs> it's really bad <laughs> is there any i mean obviously you'd expect someone to be better than that but like i don't know who you'd expect to be good like who is actually the second best hitter on this team is it it's probably Alfaro? is it yeah, it's probably castro or, or brian anderson castro, i mean brian, brian anderson I mean, was good last year yeah 
gosh, <laughs> it's just, it's not a good team and it's not a good group of hitters. And the ones who are kind of good may be traded at some point, like Neil Walker might go somewhere. And if Castro or, I don't know, Granderson recovers at some point, maybe they would go somewhere. So I don't see it getting better. I mean, I don't know that they have prospects who are ready right now to make a major difference. Like they started the season with Lewis Brinson again, who was terrible again and was sent down. So I don't know that help is really on the way. And uh, yeah, it's it's not going to get much better than this. So I think the Marlins generally have been something of a blight on baseball and have been very hard on their fans who are still sticking with them. And I don't think it's good that the Marlins are this terrible, but it is as someone who is at least captivated by extremes and historic performances and novelty. This is going to give like last year's Orioles a run for their money when it comes to the worst teams we've seen in some time. It's going to be a long season for the Marlins, and it's not a particularly fun team either. It's not like a a bad and fun team beyond some of those starting pitchers I mentioned. So sorry, Marlins fans, but this is going to be replacement level, sub-replacement level. We'll see how low they can go. Yeah. All right. Well, that might be the last time we talk about the Marlins for a while now. So just want to check in on them. We're going to do some emails today and presumably a a stat blast. Stat blast. Yeah. So I will start this with a question from Henry Clark, Patreon supporter, who was nice enough to mail me a 1953 Ned Garver Tops card this week. That is not why I'm answering his question. Although, thank you, Henry. That was very kind. He says, last Friday, May 10th, Jock Peterson hit a home run, his second of the game that StatCast recorded as having exit velocity of 113.7 miles per hour and a launch angle of 22 degrees. This home run traveled a reported distance of 402 feet. That same night, Ronald Acuna Jr. hit a home run that StatCast recorded as having exit velocity of 112.7 miles per hour, so one miles per hour less, and a launch angle of 21 degrees, one degree less, nearly identical in exit velocity and launch angle to Peterson's bomb. But this home run traveled a reported distance of 466 feet. I am about as far from being a physicist as you can be and still be a functioning member of society, but none of what I can remember or can find about projectile distances and vectors and stuff can explain an almost six. 16% disparity in the flight paths of two such similar projectiles. Peterson pulled his to right in Los Angeles, and Acuna hit his to center in Arizona, but unless the Diamondbacks turned off the humidor and had a bunch of jet engines blowing to straight away, the difference seems hard to account for. Can you please take a minute to explain the forces that so radically altered the flights of such seemingly similar balls? I assume environmental factors have an impact, but maybe spin, or maybe the balls are juiced inconsistently, and if distance is only indirectly linked to exit velo and launch angle, are they really the best measures we could use for bad at balls? So I did ask someone about this and have an answer from him, but do you care to hazard a a guess or hypothesis? No, I'll I'll mention, yeah, so yes (laughs) is actually the answer to that. I'll mention two things. One is that um, in the Baseball Prospectus uh, book, Extra Innings, from maybe eight years ago or so, Jay Jaffe uh, wrote a long um, look at the home run era of the late 90s and early 2000s and and whether steroids could explain it. And he talks a lot about ball composition and the uh, range of acceptable baseballs within Major League Baseball's regulations or standards that they give to manufacturers. And 
I don't remember, I'm speaking off the top of my head now, so I'm not going to get into specifics. And you probably, since you've researched this all, and since we all have read a lot more about it since then, we all know a little bit more about this now. But the I just remember the gap between what a ball at the low range, low end of the range and what a yeah. ball at the high end of the range, which are both, they both could theoretically be used in the same baseball game uh, theoretically mm -hmm. it was massive like way yeah. more than you would think like i, I want to say like it was 35 or, feet yeah I think okay it was 48 feet yeah yeah and so uh that has been something that i occasionally think about with with wonderment thinking how much of the sport that we think we're seeing is a uh, variation within the balls but mostly i have to suppress uh, that memory, because I assume that it's a not the case. Well, I assume that it's not the case that there is that much variation, uh, particularly within batches or within seasons. And it would be kind of uh, the, the fun of that idea wears off quickly if you start wondering about it, particularly mm -hmm. if it's if it's not true. So that's one hi hypothesis is that uh, it's that it's the whatever we're calling mm -hmm. that. The second one, which I'm almost certain is wrong, but if you just think about what a I mean a, a baseball traveling straight 400 feet travels well it, maybe it goes you know 65 feet high and so it's traveling uh in a line 400 feet but also 65 feet high so up and then down and then there's a way that you could calculate how many feet it actually traveled right like think about planes that travel from here to Japan they don't go straight across the latitude uh, because uh, you end up having to travel farther than if you go up to the North Pole and then back down, right? Does mm -hmm. that or like not to the North Pole, but up to a higher latitude? Because you're not cur you're not traveling as much around the the sphere of the Earth, and so I don't know if that's applicable here. But I think about the actual distance traveled of a 400 foot baseball is not 400 feet in space. It's it's like I don't know. 510 feet or something like that right up and then down and then out and if you add a third dimension to that of a ball that is hooking or slicing it travels it has to travel even farther in real terms to get to 400 feet it has to go up and over and out and so to travel 400 feet if you had like a frisbee's hook on it then it would have to travel maybe you know hypothetically like 600 feet or something like that and mm -hmm. so in theory you might think that a ball that goes straight would travel further with the same energy than a ball that hooks or slices that has the same energy would travel from home plate, right? Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. that's complicated by the effects of backspin and topspin and loft and things that I don't really know much better than Henry does, but I that would be the question I would ask a physicist if that could explain something. Mm -hmm. Well, I have asked a physicist, and yeah, launch angle and exit velocity tells you the the vertical angle, and it tells you how hard it was hit. It does not tell you where on the field, the spray angle, the horizontal angle, and that can be important. So I sent this question to David Kagan, who's a physics professor at CSU Chico. Oh, he writes that's a big twist in this podcast. You sent it to <laughs> not Alan Nathan. <laughs> that's Sleep. right. Yes, I'm just mixing Surprise. it up. Yeah, we got a couple physicists we can call on. But uh, David Kagan, he writes for the Hardball Times frequently about the physics of baseball. So he says, what a wonderful question. 
To answer it, we could go through the usual suspects like elevation and weather. It was 83 degrees at game time in Phoenix, but only 63 degrees in LA. However, the higher temperature only explains a paltry five feet of the difference. The wind might be a factor, and indeed the roof was open that day in Arizona. The wind was 13 miles per hour, but the stadium is very tall even with the roof off, so there isn't enough wind inside to affect the flight of the ball much. In Southern California, it was a still evening with the gentlest breeze of only two miles per hour. At most, we're looking at perhaps another five feet. The humidity at game time was only 40% at Chase Field, while it was around 70% at Dodger Town, but this would at best explain only a single lousy foot of the difference. Next, the elevation difference. Phoenix is at 1,082 feet, while the bar park in LA is up on a hill 267 feet above sea level. This is another minor effect, four feet. And of course, Chase Field has a humidor, as David Kagan wrote about recently for the Hardball Times. So it seems that elevation and weather are not the culprits. Well, what does explain the 63-foot difference between the two homers? The spin on the ball. Acuna smacked the ball just to the left of center field, while Peterson launched his ball down the right field line. Every good outfielder knows that balls hit down the line tend to veer off toward foul territory, while balls hit toward center don't fade as much. This is all due to the fact that the ball-bat collision imparts almost no side spin to the ball when the bat is level and perpendicular to the trajectory of the incoming pitch. However, if the bat and ball collide when the bat is not perpendicular and level, side spin occurs. There's more side spin when the ball is hit further away from center field. Estimating the spray angle off the bat and putting in all the weather elevation and spin, my calculations give 464 feet for Acuna's homer and 402 feet for Peterson's. So we aren't looking at some StatCast data error. Bottom line, Peterson hit a slice while Acuna drove it right down the fairway. Did I get it right? I, I think so, more or less. He didn't mention planes flying over the Arctic Circle or anything, but I, I think you kind of did. Uh-huh. So the the concept would be that they did travel roughly the same distance, just not in, since Peterson's was not uh, in one direction. It I, I think, well, okay. Extended so more of its energy moving laterally. That's what I said. So if it's that, I don't know then if I'm that's, right. If it's, it could <laughs> I don't be, know if it's that. The difference between the spin, though, I mean, anecdotally at least, backspin will get you more carry and topspin will sort of push the ball down. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's yeah. what we're talking about. If so I think that is largely what we're talking about. Okay, because Peterson think, pulled it. Yes. And mm-hmm. so, all right. Yeah. Well, so, okay. All right. So, well, that's unsatisfying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I think that's it. But yeah. I, it shouldn't be. We got the answer to the question that I was interested in hearing answered. Uh-huh. Uh, it would have been satisfying if you had not asked me first to put my own <laughs> uh-huh. self on the line. Okay. Grant says, last night the Mariners seriously piled on some runs in the late innings against my Yankees. This got me thinking. I already knew the game was over, so in the long run, all this affected was the team's run differential. Should I be rooting for the team to keep that number up? Certainly you want your team to have the best run differential since that's the name of the game. At the same time, it felt weird to think about run differential as a rooting category. Counterintuitively, I wondered if I should be rooting for the Yankees to win, but in a manner which is representative of the team's ability so that they could be adequately assessed. That felt silly, and my mind started doing loops. Don't I want players to overperform? Don't I root for overperformance every day? What about how this affects the front office? Would I actually want the team to underperform in order to incentivize Steinbrenner to better the team so long as underperformance didn't jeopardize the division? Did the Mariners do the Yankees a favor by getting Yankees Twitter riled up? Of course, no data-driven team is going to be duped by such a basic measure, but you get the point. Should we be rooting for or against run differential? Does it matter? 
I have uh, I have gone through much of this process before and gone to some of those same places. It's a tricky one, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that that I feel like maybe as a factor is that you want your players to be confident and feel like they're doing well. And so if a loss is baked in or even a win is baked in, but they're coming off a four for five day, maybe that helps them. Maybe that's something that carries over. It's certainly to get away from the question of what is going to affect the future, what is going to be a cause of future goodness for your team, simply uh, as a as a fact, if you're rooting, so basically you you root for your team to win, but you also root for your team to be good. And that's kind of an ongoing process that takes place all, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you just like, you want to be bo- like, you want to be born to a team that is good or for that team to, to somehow be good. You're sort of stuck with them. And there's a luck factor as a fan of like, do, do I have a good team? And it's kind of a constant, like you're, you're always kind of assessing whether it is a good team or is not a good team and that affects your feelings about that team Mm -hmm. and so if they have a good run differential because they are actually good that seems like the sort of thing that would make you happy regardless of whether it changes anything for the future right yeah if, if that makes any sense at all i mean the nice thing about all this is that you rooting doesn't do anything and so you don't actually have to worry that that much about whether you're rooting wrong. I, I go through this now. I have through my life, I have gone through this a lot where I have like maybe you turn on a game. So my TV, my parents TV, it used to be that you'd, you'd turn it on. I think this was how TVs all were. You'd turn it on and the audio would begin immediately, but the picture would take yeah. like, a, like two and a half seconds. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you'd have two and a half seconds of hearing action, but not knowing what team was was batting or who was doing. This also happens a lot when you turn on a game on the radio and you might pick it up mid-play and the ball is in play or the pitch has been thrown, but you don't know who's batting. And you end up rooting <laughs> for those two and a half seconds for what turns out to be the wrong team. Uh-huh. And that feels terrible. But that's a that's just an awful feeling. You feel like like you've done like you are asked to do so little in this game as a fan. And, you know, you did the one thing you had to do wrong. It's like Um, an own goal. Yeah. But the nice thing to remind yourself is that it doesn't matter. Like they don't know what you what is going on in your heart. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think whatever feels comfortable for you as a fan is is probably safe. That said, I root for run differential. I think that the there are there are some small cases that he makes that it it, it could be damaging if uh, it gives a team maybe an overinflated sense of themselves or vice versa. It might impro- help uh, hurt their ability to assess, but it probably doesn't hurt their ability to assess because mm-hmm. the run differential is the thing that they should probably be using to assess now it gets a little tricky if it's a 17 to 1 game and scott kingery is pitching and it becomes totally inauthentic baseball and nothing that anybody in your lineup does is in any way suggestive of their baseball talent and then if they if you hang eight on scott kingery then that does affect your run differential and it does affect your stats and it can mislead people who are trying to assess how good the team is so that becomes a little bit of an issue and then the question is do you root for scott kingery to get in the game so that you can run up the run differential and feel good about yourself and people will think that you're like so that you can win arguments with your friend who's like my team's better and you're like my team's run differential and like that's a fun argument so i i don't know that there's an exact answer i think that uh, probably different people have different comfort levels, but I do and always have 
rooted secondarily for run differential if the game is is uh, is done. At the most basic level, if you're a fan and you're watching a game through the lens of your fandom, then you want your team to do well. It's always the happiest outcome is for your team to score and the other team not to score. I guess at a certain point, maybe the game is just so out of hand that you want it to end because you want to do something else. And there's something to be said for close games just from an entertainment standpoint. It's kind of more fun to watch a 3-2 win than it is to watch a 10-1 win in most cases. And I think in the playoffs often when I used to really root for teams, I would like blowouts actually because I would just get so nervous and it would cause so much anxiety for there to be a a close game that actually mattered that I didn't really want it to be that close. But in general, close is good, but you also want your team to do well. You want to see your players do well. Every little hit and run scored brings you some little dopamine burst. So yeah, of course you want that. And I think the fact that it then augurs well for the rest of the team and tells you something about the quality of that team i think just adds to it there's more value there it's interesting because i've been thinking about this question the whole time as do you still root for your team to score six runs when it's down by 16 but the i mean obviously the flip side is do you still root for your team to score six runs when they're up by 16 and that yeah has all i i love a big blowout i mean i've always wanted to see the biggest blowout possible without a doubt in any team in any sport that i'm rooting for i love a blowout this also brings to mind because i like to see the stats i like to see stats i like to wake up and see like i like the ant to be the opposite of the marlins experience when you open the daily paper as a nine-year-old and you scan your team's stats you already know the record but you look at their stats and you go this is a good team like look at that bullpen look at the, the bullpen's only allowed three runs in the last week and a half like there's something to that that is satisfying as a fan and you want that to be the case this also reminds me of something that we have occasionally mentioned on this show, uh, which uh, someday I'm going to write about. It's one of my favorite things about baseball history, which is that in the very old days, you batted in the bottom of the ninth, even if you were winning. And I've always wondered, what is that? What was that bottom of the ninth inning like? How was it played out? And um, why, did they do it because they were too dumb <laughs> to, to notice what was happening? Or did they get something out of it? And I think they did get something out of it. I think that there, the what we're watching is partly the suspense of competition, but partly the act of baseball played well. And you want to see the guys that you like playing baseball well, regardless of the stakes, because there is something aesthetically beautiful, something impressive about every good baseball action that you see, no matter what. This mm-hmm. is this came up in a piece I wrote a few years ago about walk-off triples, which should be basically impossible or should basically never happen, because if the winning run is scoring, what are you doing going from second to third? Your run cannot, by definition, possibly affect anything, and all you're doing is possibly getting thrown out and one of the theories i had for why walk-off triples happened is because players respect the aesthetic purity of a baseball act done well and uh so a walk-off triple is essentially like in a, in a way it's like the same thing it's stat padding after the outcome of the game is already certain mm-hmm. and i'm pro yeah I am too. Maybe there's a point at which it cheapens things or you want almost a mercy rule, but I don't know. In the majors, I don't think there is a mercy rule. I think you always want your team to pile on probably because there's never such a gap between the best team and the next best teams that it doesn't become fun to see that team win. 
if you had a situation where your team was the Astros and the other teams were the Marlins and you were just trouncing them every time out, then sure, maybe it, it wouldn't feel as special. You wouldn't take as much pleasure in racking up the score. But as it is, all the teams are good, and there isn't that much separation. And when you can put a big number up, I think you pretty much always want your team to do that. I would be pro-mercy rule, Ben. Yeah, pro-mercy rule. Yeah. I'm not pro-mercy, though. I don't, like teams, I don't like teams to quit trying. I like the baseball and a blowout to be played at a non-boring high level. And I don't like the unwritten rules that suggest that you should quit trying to play mm-hmm. like you always play. But yeah, a rule that said that a game that's, uh, you know, already got a 10 run, say, differential in the, you know, seventh inning or later could end. That seems like, I mean, oh man, that seems perfectly fine. The only complication with that is that you kept serving alcohol until the very end. And (laughs) now you've got this like DUI problem. But otherwise, Yeah. yeah, I mean, I like the mercy rule. I think that there'd be a lot of hot takes from talk radio people mm-hmm. but complaining about the existence of mercy in the world. <laughs> uh, so maybe you'd want to call it something else. Maybe you'd want to just call it like a time efficiency or like a yeah. go weed your garden rule or something like that. All right. Question from another Sam. Baseball is so rooted in math and hard numbers that when something happens that isn't based on those things, it's very interesting to me. I wanted to get your take on errors. They seem to be so cryptically decided. As a fan, you watch the play, listen to the guys in the booth debate it, and then some random magic E just comes out of the blue. Do you see MLB ever making an attempt to use more quantifiable data to assign errors? If advanced defensive metrics evolved into a more dependable source, could they be used? For example, all fly balls hit to the outfield with a catch probability of X percent or higher must be caught, or it's an error regardless of how the play looks. This is all stemming from a Jameson Tyon start a few weeks back where Polanco missed a ball with like an 80% catch probability, but it was still classified as a hit. And uh, this is sort of in the same genre as a question we got from Everett, who was upset about quality starts. You just answered this one via email. His fantasy league counts quality starts, and he's upset when a pitcher records what would be a quality start. He goes six innings with three earned runs or fewer, but then he blows the quality start after the fact. And Everett wants to know whether that should still be a quality start, whether you should be able to lose one after you have one. And both of these questions are in the category of sort of garbage stats that we're stuck with at this point because they've been around for a while. And errors have been around since the beginning. And I know that I think what Henry Chadwick didn't like errors and was kind of up on what makes errors not so great from the very start. But we've been tracking errors forever. And so the question is, now that we know errors are not that telling from an analytical standpoint and we have better ways to assess the probability that play should be made, should you ditch errors? Should you keep? recording errors the same way you always have just for historical continuity or should you change errors to be some more objective measurement of whether it actually was an error i kind of come down on the side of just don't pay attention to bad stats when we have better stats but don't necessarily change them either like don't necessarily make the bad stat into a good stat if you already have good stats personally i would prefer to just keep the error the way we've always had it and not pay much attention to it because we still have an official scorer we're still going to have that person up there so sure have them rule on whether it's an error or not But we'll all choose not really to pay attention to what that person said, and we'll be looking at 
DRS or UZR or outs above average or whatever the future defensive metric of choice is. Of course, players are still going to care about this stuff because it's their reputation on the line and sometimes there's money at stake in arbitration still, but that's all changing to an extent too. And players are more and more often paid based on the actual underlying performance more so than those superficial stats. So do you think that there is a distinction that is useful for you to see made between a fielder who misplays a ball, who who fails to make a routine play, and a fielder who simply over the course of many games fails to make a bunch of 95% uh, or like, uh, you know, 50% plays? Like, to, is there something about a blooper, a botch that needs to be categorized? Well, for analytical purposes, I'm not sure, but for descriptive purposes, I think so. Like even UZR, for instance, you can break it down into error runs and range runs. And so you can see guys who are good because they never flub a routine play. And you can have guys also who just make the extraordinary play. And maybe they do flub a routine play every now and then. So I I would want to know that. And maybe you'd want to know that just to know what the player should improve and work on and how likely he is to improve. Like maybe it's easier to improve a player who just bobbles balls right at him than it is to improve a player who just can't get to balls in the first place. So I think it's a worthwhile distinction, but in terms of value, probably doesn't matter. What about just for you as a as part of your knowledge of the story of a game or the story of a player's season? Do you do you find it interesting to know like if there's a if a pitcher gives up 6 runs in an inning and they're all singles that theoretically are all the failure of the defense to be standing in the right place, in some cases might be the failure of the defense to have the appropriate range or to field balls that are difficult but theoretically playable uh versus like well, the shortstop threw the ball to the first baseman and it simply clanked off his glove. Does that do you like to know the distinction between those two innings? Huh. Is that the same as asking I mean, for a pitcher, if we have earned runs and unearned runs, and now you have stats that can tell you what a player should have done, how a pitcher actually pitched, just in terms of say the batted balls he allowed and how likely they were to become hits on average or just his strikeouts and walks and strip the defense out of it. I don't mind having ERA and unearned runs and having those be separate categories, but I wouldn't want to go back to having that decide everything because I would still want to be able to tell how he actually pitched independent of those things. So these are all things that I'd kind of like being recorded. It's like win-loss record is something that we don't pay attention to anymore from an analytical perspective, and we don't even cite it that much anymore. But it can be fun for trivia, and it can be fun to track the changes in the game. If you can see that suddenly no one's winning 20 games anymore, that tells you something about how pitchers are being used. Not that you need that. You could look at other ways to assess that. But I think it's nice just to be able to compare win-loss records today to win-loss records decades ago and see that, okay, this is reflecting what a starting pitcher was expected to be at that time and this time. And so I wouldn't say toss out win-loss records, don't don't record them. It's not like it's hard to do. You just keep doing what you've always been doing, but you pay less attention to it or you pay attention to it in a different way. Yeah, I I I like that errors are I like that there is a category for errors in theory. Like if I were designing if they didn't exist, I would propose it. Uh to me there's something about the uh egregiousness of an error that feels like it's worth jotting down. Just like 
there's something about a home run robbery that I'm glad people count now that they don't just treat it as an out that mm-hmm. that sports info solutions is is doing the work right counting they have it for us good fielding plays and bad fielding plays and it's kind of like errors except it's at least in theory more rigorous and based on video review and comparisons to yeah. other players and so yeah. I'm I'm glad that the clanked off the glove is somehow recorded uh in in the annals now I I don't think that it should be used for anything else, uh, probably, including ERA. I don't think that ERA, even though I use ERA instead of runs allowed for everything, I don't know why, but I don't think that ERA, that for the purposes of measuring the pitcher, we should only make allowances for defense in a particular subset of plays that are not that different from a much larger subset of quite similar plays, in fact. So I would I would dump ER uh, earned runs. I would dump errors from any sort of analysis. I heard a broadcaster the other day say that some team had been the worst team in the worst defense in baseball because they had the lowest fielding percentage. And I just groaned and thought, wow, still still saying things like that doesn't <laughs> seem right to me. Right. So that's where I kind of come down is like. Unfortunately, anytime you have a stat, it is going to be used in a way that grinds you, uh, particularly when it's a stat that has a 150-year history in the game and was for a long time until quite recently the most seen as the most important stat. Uh, So it's a long process, but it doesn't bother me that much, but it does bother me a little bit. Uh, But I am glad that we count errors more than I'm glad that we count quality starts, by the way. Did you Mm -hmm. see Emma Bachelary's tweet about two days ago about the, it was kind of like a you make the call sort of thing from a 1966 newspaper? (laughs) No. Okay, I'm going to read it and then you can make the call. And and then I'm going to read you Emma's tweet above it, which I think in fact, is the answer to this question that we should have just simply read and then saved all this time. But all right, (laughs) Francis Wooden, former St. Joseph's High athlete, told us about it. In essence, it went like this. With a runner on second base and two outs, the batter hit a routine grounder to the shortstop who fielded it cleanly. The runner was then en route to third base with the crack of the bat. The shortstop became confused as to where the runner had been. He moved towards second base, tagged it, and thought he had completed a force out to end the inning. Then he suddenly realized that there had been no one on first base when the ball was hit. So he quickly pegged to first base. By this time, the batter had crossed the bag and was ruled safe. So what would you call it? Three options have been advanced. They are hit, error, and fielder's choice. Well, it certainly is an error of a a type. It's a mental error. But if he had bobbled it and failed to make that throw to first then that would be counted as an error. And in terms of the effect and really also the reason, it's sort of the same thing, right? So it's kind of difficult. I mean, historically, you haven't really counted mental errors as errors so much. And you also, I mean, the problem with errors is that like if a fielder touches a ball and drops it, it's an error. If he never touches it, even though it drops right next to him because he never saw it or something, then it's it's not an error. So in some ways, errors strip out what the player was thinking or his motive at times. It's more about like the physical act. So maybe it's inconsistent with how errors have usually been assessed, but I'd call it an error. It's very odd because it, so this shortstop, the play was at first and he instead, you could call it, he he went and tagged second, but you could assume he, let's, let's just hypothetically say he tossed it to second and the second baseman was there and was like, what? I don't have anything to do with this. So that would have been the exact same thing as what he did, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So if the shortstop had fielded the ball and then turned and thrown it to the left fielder, 
that would be also the same thing, <laughs> throwing it to a place where there is no play at the expense of the outs that are there to be made. And I think then throwing it to the left fielder would definitely be called an error. And so why not throwing it, traveling it, you know, yeah. locomoting it to second base where there is also no play would not equally be an error. This reminds me, I, I've mentioned a couple of days ago that I'm in a no-hitter league with Mark Simon and Sarah Langs. Mm-hmm. And uh, all that matters is how long a no-hit bid survives. And so I pay a lot of attention to the first hit of games and what they are, what they look like. And I have this has really clarified something for me, which is that a ton of hits are just so stupid. Like not <laughs> just like we all know that like bloopers fall in and uh, line drives get caught, but a ton of them are so stupid. They're just the stupidest plays. Like so many hits are swinging bunts, pop ups in no man's land that are like that the shortstop is there, but then gets turned around and it falls. Like I'm talking like, you're not going to believe me, Ben, but of all the hits in Major League Baseball, 85% are that, are one of those two things I just described. (laughs) And there's another category of this, which I've noticed. I've seen two no-hitters. These could be in the first inning, but they are no-hitters broken up this year where the, the ball was hit to the first baseman, the pitcher broke late, but got to the bag you know, in time to beat the runner, but narrowly and at a full sprint. And it's a very tricky play at that point, right? That's the tough play. Whereas if he'd broken right away and gotten there in time to sort of slow down and angle into it, that's an easy play. And so both times the throw was dropped and an error was called instead of a hit. Whereas if the pitcher did not break at all, I think they would maybe call that a hit Uh because now there's no pitch there. Or if he broke even later and didn't get there before the runner, Like if he got there a foot behind the runner because he broke even later, that's also a hit. And so the that's what I mean when I say that like the difference between many hits and many errors is almost indistinguishable. And that's before you account for, well, if you were standing one foot over, which is totally an option, then it wouldn't have been a hit. It would have been an error or vice versa. Anyway, I think that the example that Emma gave to me is clearly an error. The Mm -hmm. newspaper at the time hold some scores, some scorekeepers, and the consensus was error. But the consensus on Twitter seemed to be that it should be one of those other two. Anyway, uh, to get to the what I was saying, Emma sums this entire thing up, which I will now read. Okay, I stumbled across this in a newspaper while looking for something totally unrelated. And in the space of five minutes, I've gone from I don't care to hit to fielder's choice to what is an error, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where every contemplation of errors leads is what is an error because that's what official scores have to decide every time and they decide it pretty inconsistently. So we end up puzzling about this often. Yeah. All right. Stat Blast? Stat Blast! They'll take a data set sword if I something like minus or OBS plus and then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit discuss So uh, we talked a couple days ago about home run robberies and uh, Matt Trueblood's findings that part of this seems to be that fielders are uh, outfielders are playing much deeper in this deep fly ball home run era, which makes 
home run robberies probably more possible because you're able to get back and catch them. And if fielders are playing back deep like that, it also opens up possibilities for another one of the most exciting and expectations subverting plays in baseball, which is the hustle double, right? Mm -hmm. If you're playing deep and a ground ball goes through center field and you've got a hustler and uh, you, you lollygag just a little bit, then suddenly he's tearing around first base, hustling in for a double. We all love a hustle double. One of yeah. my favorite plays in baseball, though I don't think that that's how hustle should be used. But anyway, <laughs> I wondered if there are more hustle doubles this year than there have been in previous years. And so I looked at some stat cast data. And before I tell you what I did, I, uh, w- I'm curious to know, how would you how would you look for this? How would you what would you do to <sighs> try to find out? how many hustle doubles there are. And now we'll see if that aligns with my process. Gosh, I don't know. I'm blanking right now. All right. Well, here's what I did. And the goal, of course, is to capture as many hustle doubles as possible while including as many non-hustle traditional doubles as possible. So I took a fairly narrow view of what I was going to count. So I went to um, StatCast search and I queried doubles hit on ground balls to basically the middle two-thirds of the field. So I'm taking out anything down the line, down the lines. So I went from 60 degrees to 60 degrees. So that is basically, you know, to straightaway left to straightaway right, I think. And uh, so anything down the line is not going to count because that's a traditional double. So these are going to be ground balls up the middle. And then I also did a separate query for anything in the air up the middle that had a exit velocity of 83 miles per hour or less, because that is almost certainly not going to be a ball that an outfielder has to run back on, but rather that he has to run in on. I don't know if that's a, a good way of, uh, of, of, of defining these things. However, I can tell you that I watched, I don't know, maybe 20 of these and not one of them was not a hustle double. Every single one that I found was exactly what you think of as a hustle double. So this would be either a ground ball up the middle or like kind of a, you know, a flare or a line drive that's kind of up the middle and kind of kind of in the gap, but that the outfielders are running in on, not running even sideways on. If anything, I am leaving hustle doubles on the table, but I am mm-hmm. not uh, capturing non-hustle doubles. So I looked at how many there were each year. And to restate what, well, I guess you had this chart in your article the next day. So in 2015, the average center fielder played 312 feet deep. Now it's 321 feet deep. And the corner outfielders have moved more or less correspondingly. I, I can't remember. Is it a pretty four or five feet in the and, corners and, and it's gone a little bit back each year it, yeah, it hasn't gone every back. year okay so even mm-hmm. 2017 which had more home runs than 2018 uh was still a little more shallow than in 2018 right yes all right um so i threw out 2015 i just looked at 2016 2017 2018 and 2019 and uh the number of hustle doubles in 2016 was 118 and then in 2017 it was 158 it's a big jump got a trend mm-hmm. And then in 2018, it, it was actually only 127. And then this year, it's on pace to be only 116, which would actually be the low for the last four years. So that was a dud. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I Sorry. It's, I don't know why. Do you have a theory or why we are not seeing more hustle doubles, Ben? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it could be, uh, maybe it's like less 
valuable to try to take that extra base because uh, there's less contact, fewer balls in play. It's like the same stuff we've talked about uh-huh. with, uh, you know, it makes less sense to try to go to third when you're on second and you know you're just kind of waiting for a a homer or not expecting to be driven in at all yeah 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 maybe could (laughs) be uh although the the peak home run year of the previous three was when we saw the most hustle doubles i think that it's just that players don't hustle like they did in my day (laughs) yes my day was 2017 (laughs) right uh (laughs) these guys today they just don't want it they're paid too much (laughs) i don't i don't really know i'm disappointed in it but that's that's what that's what it says that's what all of this says uh you're right though that fewer balls are put in play and of course more of the balls that are put in play are are fly balls so even fewer grounders and flares are put in play so but all the same i mean it this is significantly uninteresting i will give you a little bit of a a little bit of um an extra fun fact which is that three players three players four players four players are tied for the most hustle doubles in the past four years with a relatively unexciting total of six apiece. Mm-hmm. But they do. These these four players have six apiece. One of them is Carlos Gonzalez, and the answer to that seems pretty easy to explain. He played in Coors Field for a lot mm-hmm. of that time, which is very spacious, and outfielders have to play even deeper. One is Ozzy Albies, who I think of as a major hustle double kind of guy and also a hustle triple kind of guy and so uh i don't know if he is i don't watch the the majority of ozzy albie's ball playing but uh it fits a narrative that i already had about him one is kevin kiermeyer kevin kiermeyer has three of each type he's the only player with three of each of these types the ground ball and the fly ball hustle double and then eddie rosario who has four of the fly ball type and two of the ground ball type and i watched all of his and they are really, they are glorious. They are all like, he beats it by an inch. You don't see it coming. You don't, you don't even, you don't even know he's, he's doing it until he's two thirds of the way. And then the, the hurried throw and the tag and the overslide and he keeps his finger on it and it's beautiful. Uh, so those are all the, the six hustle double guys. Anthony Rizzo has five and Billy Hamilton has five, which I like because those are two extremely different player types, but they both get to kind of the same place here. Yeah. I was going to ask whether it's, better to be extremely fast or sort of sneaky fast what's the best way to get a hustle double because if you're billy hamilton obviously everyone's expecting you yeah. to try to go or they're and they're, they're not aware. playing deep yeah they're not yeah that too either. yeah right so the fact that he's done that anyway is even more a testament yeah. to his speed well yeah there's both types uh, at the top of this list and uh so either way i think works but i think that being sneaky fast slash power hitter just eyeballing the top is is a little bit better Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I appreciate a stat blast with a null result. Mm-hmm. Got to mix in one of those every now and then. Yeah. No, no publication bias on this podcast. <laughs> if we if we get a significantly uninteresting stat blast, we will still tell you about it. <laughs> it's our commitment to you. All right. Andrew Patrick, Patreon supporter, says, if we had robot umpires, perhaps we should say when we have robot umpires, would or will catchers still squat? Yeah, so this uh, we emailed a bunch of this stuff back and forth, and mm-hmm. uh, so now I feel weird saying it because you've already heard me say it. I have not seen your your responses. All right. So. Oh, good. So who asked this question? Andrew Patrick. Andrew. And so I asked Andrew whether he meant to go back to the way they used to do it, where they just kind of lean over uh-huh. in that old timey catcher way. 
or whether he meant that they would like just kneel, that they would just be on their knees like uh, you do in Little League when you're tired and it's the sixth inning and your coach yells at you. And he said the latter. Um, so let's quickly just address the former, which I wanted to mention. Uh, I had a conversation with, uh, I, I believe, Dave Schoenfield and Brad Doolittle uh, earlier this year about when that they had been discussing when the catcher leaning over way of standing disappeared. And uh, I, I said like 1810, right? Like that, that's way old timey. And they said that it's actually much more recent than you think. Like if you look at, I believe if I'm remembering this right, if you look at World Series video from like the 50s, they're still standing that way, which is crazy. Mm. I might be wrong about all of that, including who I was having this conversation with. <laughs> but Andrew said the kneeling one, which I think is extremely interesting. I'm glad that you brought this question up, not because I have a ton to say about it, but I think that that what Andrew and I briefly talked about is very interesting to think about. Andrew said, uh, if you don't have a runner on, you would just kneel because... The squat is really good for framing. It helps you kind of center your body around the pitch, helps mm -hmm. you kind of lean into it so that you're not jabbing at it. If you kneel, you're going to be jabbing. And so it, a big part of the reason that you would squat, even if there's no one on base, is to give the umpire that good presentation. If you didn't have to worry about the umpire, because this is all math now, you could jab. It doesn't matter if you jab. You could drop it for all anybody cares. And so you just kneel. And so the first thing that you would think is uh, uh, when you hear robo-umpires is, ah, robo-umpires will mean more catcher offense because we'll no longer be selecting catchers primarily for defense because their defensive contribution will be so much smaller and mobility will not be quite as important. Mm -hmm. But Andrew's suggestion suggests that you'd have another big improvement to catcher offense because they they could rest they their legs would not break down nearly as quickly they would have a fresh legs because they would only have to squat you know a couple dozen times a game instead of a couple hundred times a day and their careers would be longer they would run faster they would be healthier they would have strong fresh legs maybe even into the summer and all in all you'd expect catcher offense to go way up and then this further led to the realization that that the players union the players association should be fighting for this, you would think. Now, maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's union solidarity. I don't know where the Players Association considers the Umpires Association to be their allies or their foes because they're going for the same, uh, in some ways, the same control or power in the game. But from the Players Association perspective and from the Players Association members specifically, we're talking about roughly 10% of the workforce for whom this is a workplace safety issue a career longevity issue and a quality of life issue this for 10 percent of the workforce this would be a significant improvement in their work life and you would sort of think that if the players association thought about it that way that this would be something that they might be fighting for and demanding now that the technology is there and i don't know maybe that's maybe that's i don't know i don't know how you handle the fact that uh the other guys are a union too uh, and you're basically trying to get rid of their jobs um, or some portion of them, replace them with uh, with automation. So maybe that, maybe that, I don't know, maybe you don't think that way. Maybe you do. I'm not sure. But strictly from players' perspective, you could see the union really taking this as a as a priority. Yeah. So you'd have to be somewhat mobile just so you could block balls. You'd have to get down and you wouldn't want to stand up, obviously, because you still need to present a target that's in the strike zone. So you still got to get low, but... Well, you only have to block balls with two strikes. Yeah, that's that's true, I guess. So you'd, you'd still have to 
be down, but you wouldn't have to be as down as you are currently. And I think being on your knees probably wouldn't hurt a whole lot for blocking pitches. You're even lower than you are squatting. You're less mobile laterally. So that's kind of a problem. You know, maybe there'd be more wild pitches and passed balls. So you'd have to keep that in mind. But I think kneeling makes sense just uh, from a less strain on your knees. I mean, it's not easy to <laughs> to kneel either. That can hurt your knees sometimes too. But I think that's probably what would happen. And, and you could even, you know, if you're just kneeling every time, you could have thick knee pads and you'd be fine. That's that's kind of what you do already. So I, I think that's probably what would happen. But those concerns that you bring up are interesting ones. And it would be nice for catchers because uh, Jeff and I did an episode, episode 1215, where we talked to all of the tallest catchers in history. So we had the the three six foot six catchers in history all on one episode, including current Tigers catcher Grayson Greiner. And the older catchers we talked to were just <laughs> reeling off a litany of surgeries and, oh, my hip has been replaced and my knees and this and that. And, you know, their entire lower bodies are, are just like cybernetic at this point because of their height and the strains of playing the position. But yeah, you would get to see less wear and tear on catchers. You'd get to see catchers playing more games. So it, it would change the position. We're like at the low ebb for the position offensively right now. Primarily, it seems because there is so much emphasis on the defense because it can be quantified now. So we'd do a complete 180 and you'd have the opposite in this scenario. So it, it really would change things dramatically. All right, maybe last one here. Let's see, this is from Mitch, also a Patreon supporter. And we were just talking about starters versus relievers the other day. So this is perhaps inspired by that. The opener seems to me like it's here to stay as a strategy, even if it never becomes widespread. In light of that, how many seasons do you think it will be until relievers throw more innings than starters collectively? As you said, I think when we just talked about this, it hasn't changed much this year relative to last year, right? So it's it's just over 40%, I think, is going to relievers right now. Yeah, just over 40%. And if my memory serves me right, it's gone from like 30% to 40% fairly steadily upward since like the you know, since 2000 or since the 90s it goes up when there's high offense a little bit uh, so it's not a perfect line up but it's gone up sort of slowly but steadily this is the this year it has kind of stalled uh, but that's a one-year stall um, mm -hmm. and it's not conclusive yet yeah so is there any reason to think that it will pick up again to the point that relievers will outweigh starters do you think well i i think that there's maybe a case that the slow and steady progress might be done that like i would say that within in in i i've given the 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 long answer before like i think within 50 years the answer is undoubtedly yes but i don't think that it's going to be it goes up 0.2 percent every year for 50 years or anything like that i think that we might have reached a point now where it's kind of maxed out under the current way of playing but the next like the next change in pitcher usage will flip it in like entirely quite quickly. And so I don't know when that year will happen though, when that flip will happen. And that flip basically being that uh, rather than having even the notion of a five man rotation of guys who go six innings, you mm -hmm. have, uh, you know, maybe two dozen pitchers in baseball who go 
five or six innings and everybody else is on a three or four day rotation as one to four inning relievers or one to four inning pitchers and yeah. that the 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 roles are entirely broken down mm-hmm. but I, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen like this year and that doesn't seem to me like something that's likely to happen gradually it seems like the thing that's likely to happen when one or three teams commit to it suddenly and yeah. it works and then lots of teams do it and it becomes the new economic model for pitchers and player development and everything else yeah well that could happen fairly soon if one team it decides could. this would benefit us could happen it's like, this summer could. yeah like when the rays debuted the opener last year in may by the end of the season what like 10 teams had tried it something like that and entering the season you would never have thought that that any team would do it really let alone you know a significant percentage of the teams in baseball and that had to do with the fact that the Rays were pretty successful with that strategy too but still it just took one team to break the ice there and and for baseball to be ready for it because as i wrote the 93a's experimented with something like that too and it was just before its time and it wasn't adopted and they didn't stick with it that long But if one team entered a season, I mean, the Rays could have done this instead. Maybe maybe they could have just as easily said, we lost a lot of guys to Tommy John surgery, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to have Blake Snell will be a starter, but everyone else won't be a starter. And maybe if they'd done that, it would have hastened this change. So I don't know. It's conceivable to me that it it might be decades but it's also conceivable to me that it could be two years or that something. is that is exactly where i stand yeah <laughs> so should we hazard a guess because mitch asked us to yeah it just is not a thing that apply that that you can apply averages or anything yeah. to so yeah i mean i'll say that uh it happens uh in eight years okay six years huh all right uh no hmm. I'll take, I'll take the know. over. I think I'll go uh, eleven years. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough one. But it it will happen. We both think it will happen. Yeah. So I mean, within coming. within fifty, mm-hmm. or maybe All within right. seventy five, but quite possibly next year. <laughs> okay. All right. Should I wrap up there? Sure. Okay. Well, after Sam and I spoke, the Marlins lost again, and they got shut out again. That's two consecutive shutouts. They've scored eight runs in their last seven games. They have not scored two runs since May 6th. Not great. Before I wrap up, I'll just talk about two more questions, one of which will be quick. This one came in after we finished recording from Eric Hartman. He says, what's the highest number of runs a team has scored with one player scoring every one of those runs? As an example, I write this in the sixth inning of the Jays game, and Brandon Drury has scored all three of the Blue Jays' runs. That is how that game ended. Blue Jays lost 4-3 and Drury scored the three Jays runs. Sam answered this one via email. It's four. Matt Kemp scored four on July 19th, 2009 in a Dodgers 4-3 win. Eric Davis scored four in an August 24th, 1990 4-3 Reds win over the Pirates. Sam says it may have happened before that, but that's the most. I'll take his word for it. And this other question is one that I had on my list and I'll answer it now because it's peripherally related to something Sam and I discussed. This is from Brendan. He says, recently I saw Landon Powell's name listed as an alumnus of a local youth baseball league, but what stuck out to me is that they listed catching a no-hitter as his accomplishment. I read that and laughed, thinking, is being a catcher and a no-hitter really an accomplishment? 
Then the dialogue surrounding Mike Fires' recent no-hitter made me think, are we thinking of no-hitters wrong? We tend to think of a no-hitter or perfect game as a player accomplishment, but in actuality it should be considered a team accomplishment. It's a combination of good pitching and good defense not making any mistakes. Why do we seem to give all the credit to the pitcher and not to the team as a whole? To bring this back to the Landon Powell comment, why don't all the players credit in their list of accomplishments that they were part of a no-hitter? Ramon Laureano made a great play that preserved the no-hitter slash shutout, so shouldn't he be recognized in his career for this too? And yes, I think that's true. I I think we acknowledge that no-hitters and perfect games, even to an extent, are team accomplishments. I know that, for instance, Jason Veritek and Carlos Ruiz, I believe, have caught four no-hitters apiece. I think that's a record. And there's always, it seems, a play that comes along in a no-hitter that preserves that no-hitter. Like when we think of Mark Burley, for instance, Mark Burley has a no-hitter and a perfect game. And when you think of Mark Mark Burley's perfect game, I think of Dwayne Wise's home run robbery to preserve that. And if you think of his no-hitter, I think Jermaine Dye had a home run robbery or at least a a catch at the top of the wall that preserved that. And as we've noted, many no-hitters are not actually that impressive from a pitching perspective. Often there are a lot of balls in play and a lot of fantastic plays. And when you're talking about a perfect game, of course, often there are many balls in play and there are many fielders who made spectacular plays that if they hadn't made them might have been ruled an error but still would have broken up the no-hitter. Of course it's defense dependent. I mean, every start is catcher dependent. The catcher involved in every pitch and so we might as well list the winning catcher and the losing catcher along with the winning pitcher and the losing pitcher we don't do that i think the reason why we give pitchers credit for no hitters and perfect games is that they're the person at the center of that story they're the protagonist they're the one who has the ball they're initiating the action they're the one we're focusing on and they're the one most responsible for the outing but i believe it's a a tradition right when a, a pitcher pitches a perfect game often they will give a watch to all their teammates or something and it will be engraved with you know, the date and the perfect game. And that's a recognition of the fact that, of course, it's team dependent and the pitcher can't actually do it himself unless he strikes out every batter. And even then, he'd still be dependent on the catcher to call those pitches and catch them. So it's really just for convenience sake, for storytelling's sake. You don't want to say this team threw a no-hitter and list every player on that roster. So you list the starting pitcher. But There's an acknowledgement that all players or most players played a part. You can play a part in supporting this podcast by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already pledged their support and are helping preserve the podcast. Mitchell Utzler, Eric Albers, John Russo, Tom Hawk, and Matthew Penny. Thanks to all of you. I have something else today to ask you to support. I know the point of this podcast is to distract us from death. Let us forget our mortality, but sometimes mortality intrudes. And it intruded for me today after I finished recording this email episode with Sam. As I do after every email episode, I sent a document with all the questions we answered to a group of several listeners who started or have helped contribute to the Effectively Wild wiki. Then they take those questions and they add them to the synopsis of that episode when it's added to the wiki. One of the guys I always include in those emails is Mike Moriarty, whom I've mentioned once or twice before on the show because he's been such a big part of the Effectively Wild Wiki project. And sometime after I sent that email today, I learned that Mike passed away recently, leaving behind a wife and a young son. Mike was a White Sox fan in Chicago, and he's been a listener for years. He's been a member of the Facebook group for years, and he has contributed more than 500 episode synopses to the Effectively Wild Wiki. He's been one of the two most active participants in that project, and he was working on it 
right up almost until the day he died. It made me very sad to go look at the sign-up sheet on the Facebook group where people claim episodes to recap, and he is the last one to have edited that. I think episode 1364 is the last one that he worked on and added to the wiki. I didn't really know Mike well. We had corresponded via email and Facebook chat, but he was a presence in my life, and I appreciated his contribution to the community. He's a big part of the Facebook group and a huge part of the wiki project. He was also a contributor to Banished to the Pen, the blog started by Effectively Wild listeners, and I know that they're planning to publish his last post very soon. I know from looking at his Facebook page that he's missed by many people, and some of them have set up a GoFundMe page for his wife, Ruth, and his son, Mike Jr., who's three. I'm going to link to that GoFundMe in the show notes today and in the Facebook group. If you'd like to help out his family, that would be a great gesture. He gave many hours to listening to and documenting this podcast, and if you ever use the Effectively Wild wiki to look up an episode, it's very likely that you're looking at his handiwork. I know that he was working toward completing that project, which is almost complete. Almost every episode has been recapped, and I'm really grateful for that. So even though I never met him, I sort of felt like I knew him, just because he was a part of this community that has grown over the years and has meant a lot to people. And I can see just from looking at the list of people who've contributed to that GoFundMe, there are a lot of other Facebook group members, podcast listeners, banished to the pen writers who got to know him through the show and everything that's sprung up around it. So thank you, Mike, and condolences to everyone in his life. I'll start a thread in the Facebook group for people to share remembrances of Mike. You can join that Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And please consider pre-ordering my book, which can be in your hands in less than three weeks. Order it anywhere. Send some confirmation that you pre-ordered an email or a receipt to the MVP machine at gmail.com and you will be eligible for a bunch of bonus goodies that we will be giving you when the book comes out on June 4th, an extra chapter, conversation between me and Travis, and some other fun documents that are related to the book that you'll want to see. So pre-ordering really helps us and it helps you too. We'll be back with another episode a little later this week. So Meg and I will talk to you then. And I remember the last thing that he told me. said, would you say a prayer for me? Friends say I shouldn't feel so guilty. But I don't know about that. I wish I felt like standing tall But I don't know about that I'm just sad about that I could use a place to